Hey everybody, this is Tyson and Logan, and you're listening to Dad Bods and Beards Podcast. It's a show that gives you a fresh look on being a father, a husband, and honestly, a man being in today's world. For people who want to have a good time, laugh, and be uplifted, thanks for subscribing and listening. Now for the show. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hawkins. So uh, welcome to Dad Bods and Beards. I'm Tyson, and this is Logan. For those who uh, don't know her, which I would imagine few of you don't, um, I was fortunate enough to uh, hear her lecture about an hour and a half on um, eating disorders and on body image and social media and everything. And it impacted me in such a way that I had to ask her if she would be willing to be on Dad Bods and Beards with us because I feel like as a father and as a husband, um, it's it's disgusting, it's icky, it bothers me really bad what my daughters have to go through and what my wife sees on a regular basis through social media. And then also a lot of things with body image, especially and how I eat, um, really resonated with what you said, Dr. Hawkins. And so I really, really wanted everyone to hear this because I think this is a, a platform where guys are going to come on and maybe not even understand uh, what what is going on with our the women in our lives. So with that, Dr. Hawkins, I'm just going to read your bio. Um, Dr. Hawkins is a clinical psychologist and a chief executive officer at Center for Change. She is a specialist in eating disorders and body image and has provided clinical expertise for change since 1999. Dr. Hawkins developed a comprehensive body image program that focuses on media, diet industry, plastic surgery, childhood issues, and learning to appreciate one's body. And she leads this group uh, for the inpatient and residential patients for Center for Change. She is a certified eating disorder specialist and has published several articles and presents regularly uh, at national and regional conferences. So Dr. Hawkins, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your story of what made you decide to get in this field of study. Okay. So yeah, so I, um, as an adolescent girl, I didn't have any body image issues. I never been on a diet. I was pretty happy with myself for the most part. And then um, I was studying politics and I decided um, my senior year in college, I worked on the governor's campaign. I worked on the senator's campaign and I just figured I was gonna be in politics or be an attorney and I'm very thankful I didn't become an attorney, uh, but then my freshman year in college, I went away to Northern California to this private college. And when we look at when eating disorders develop, it's usually around puberty and around college age. Now, of course, women and men can develop eating disorders at any point in their life, but those are the most vulnerable times. And that's when we see them the most. So I fell into that second category. So when I went away to college, I instantly felt insecure. I felt like I'd made this huge mistake. I wasn't smart enough to be at this university. And I was really, really struggling. And they sat us down as a, a freshman orientation. And they said, please, you know, be careful. Don't gain the freshman 15. And you don't want to get the Benson butt. And that was the name of our cafeteria. Well, I'm already this kind of anxious person. Um, I didn't want to do anything wrong. So I decided, well, I'll lose 15 pounds. So then when I gain the freshman 15, I'll be okay. So just so everyone knows, the freshman 15 is not a thing. If we mm. want to label it anything, it's the freshman four pounds. And the reason it's the freshman four pounds is because women's bodies and men's bodies are still developing and changing in college. That, that's not our adult version of ourselves, right? But I didn't know that. So for me, that is the first time in my life that I started to diet and to restrict. Hmm. And I'm sure you guys know that diets don't work. 98% of all diets completely fail. You gain all the weight back plus more. But I didn't know that. I went on a diet and we know that if, if you go on a pretty restrictive diet, you're five times more likely to develop an eating disorder. If you do wow. a fasting diet, you're 18 times more likely to develop wow. an eating disorder. So think about right now, everyone does intermittent fasting. 
that's that's a recipe to develop an eating disorder or to develop to develop binge eating. So for me, going on that very first diet, at first I loved it. I felt very confident. I was losing weight. I was getting results. People were noticing, and it calmed me down. I, I actually felt less anxious. The problem was, is I had to do more and more behaviors to get those same results. So just like if you guys have ever went on a diet, at first it works, but over time it stops working. And so I got more and more extreme. And then for me, my freshman year is when I developed anorexia. And, um, and once I developed anorexia, I didn't care about anything else at that point. I only cared about how much I ran, how many calories I ate and what I weighed. And that really dictated my life then for the next four years. And, and I had to change my major. I had to then major in psychology because I knew something was wrong with me. And so that's how I kind of got into learning more about eating disorders. It still was never my intent to specialize in eating disorders. But I think for, for individuals struggling with eating disorders, they really need examples of recovery. They really need to know that you can 100% recover. It's just going to take a while. So that's how I got into it. It wasn't ever really my intent. Even in, in graduate school, um, I was training to be a neuropsychologist. I wasn't planning. But, you know, I've been here now at the Center for Change for 24 years. Um, I've seen so many patients over the years fully recover. And it, it's definitely a passion for me and kind of something I've devoted my life to at this point. That's one thing that I notice is the passion. And I think wow. that's what translated to me uh, just because I, I, I've noticed some some changes since I personally have seen you that I'm doing. Also, the way I communicate to other people about food. Um, it's just so before we dive deep into that, can you uh, kind of provide us an overview perhaps of what an eating disorder is and what types of eating disorders that exist? Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people think, well, people with eating disorders, they must just be thin or underweight. In fact, only 6% of people with eating disorders are actually underweight. So oh, the wow. majority of people with eating disorders or a normal waiter, or they could be a little higher BMI. And so we usually see eating disorders on some kind of a continuum. So there, there can be the anorexia where people are restricting, they're not eating enough. Um, they, they think they look larger, they have body dysmorphia, they think they're, they're larger than they actually are. That's how I started out in my eating disorder. But then I um, quickly went to bulimia. So where you're, you're binging on large amounts of food and then you're either compensating by purging your food, vomiting your food, taking laxatives, running, doing you know extreme exercise. And I was doing all of those behaviors. And probably when I was at my sickest, I probably looked the most normal that people thought I was doing okay. And so, um, and then of course we have binge eating disorder. And then, you know, I have a son that struggles with ARFID that's avoiding restrictive food intake disorder. That's much more common in males. We sometimes call them picky eaters where they mm -hmm. don't like oh. taste. You know, if I tried to feed you cottage cheese, you wouldn't be able to do it because all the textures in your mouth, but they can, they can fail to meet their milestones in their development. And so that's when that can be a problem. If your picky eater is not, you know, maybe in their growth developments, that's usually when they end up um, coming to treatment or needing professional help. So those are the main eating disorders. Um, the majority of people that have an eating disorder do not even ask for help for at least four years. They struggle in silence. For males with eating disorders, that can be up to seven years that they're struggling and not even reaching out, telling anyone they have a problem. So they're very underdiagnosed. And unfortunately, in our society, disordered eating is pretty common. If we look at college age women, about 80% of them sometimes binge, sometimes purge, sometimes take laxatives, diuretics. So this whole diet culture we have is very normalized right now. Yeah, agreed. And, and everyone kind of does it. And so it's mm -hmm. sometimes easy to miss an eating disorder. The yeah, other so Logan and I, sorry, 
Oh, go ahead. I was just going to. Logan and I have been reading. Eating, eating disorder that gets missed. That's orthorexia. And these are the people you could be praising that are the clean eaters. They're very, very healthy. They exercise a lot. They could be the ones out running marathons. And we praise them. But that can be an eating disorder as well. But go ahead, Tyson. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no. That was exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Is uh, we've been reading, um, what is it called? Life beyond your eating disorder. So Logan and I have been yes. studying up on this, and we're prepping ourselves to to talk to you. And one of the things that she, as she was growing up, and she was a ballerina, and uh, she did it eight to ten hours a day, um, and she was learning. And then someone would, yeah, it's birthday, here's some cake, and she wouldn't eat the cake, and everyone would praise her for how much self control she had. But in reality, she was dying inside, and she wanted it so bad because that's all she could think of. So yeah, that was amazing that you said that. And so, but how about this? What are I have a very I have a lot of loved ones in my life that you know maybe have anxiety or depression, uh, maybe be fit, maybe be um, overweight or something like that. And I would hate for any of this to happen because this is um, it's hard to see. So, what are the warning signs and symptoms that someone might be struggling with an eating disorder? Like, what me as a father, what am I looking for for my children to see if they have one of these issues that we can maybe nip it in the butt before it becomes a problem? Yeah, that's a great question. And sometimes it's really small, subtle things. Like, I'm just not going to eat sugar anymore. And, and again, we could praise our kids like, oh, you're not eating candy now. You're not eating sweets. This is great. Or I'm giving up soda, which a lot of these things we could say, well, this is a great thing. It's if it keeps on going and they get more and more restrictive and they're and then they're like, well, I'm not going to eat meat. A lot of our patients are vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for many, many years. I didn't eat red mm. meat for 15 years. A lot of times people praise me for that. But again, it was me becoming very, very restrictive and controlled about my food. Um, so those are some of the warning signs, of course, avoiding meals. But then also you could see a lot of food being gone from the house. And then excuses of, oh, I threw that out, even though maybe they binged on that food. So food disappearing. Um, mm -hmm. And then a lot of ice could be another thing we're seeing where they're just they don't want to be around us which i have a teenage son they don't want to be around us anyway half the time but those could be other things you're kind of noticing with them of course sudden weight loss um or weight gain but i think what a lot of dads need to know and a lot of moms need to know is for our daughters when they're going through puberty they need to be about 25 percent body fat so that means most of our daughters are going to gain some weight. They could go through what they call a chubby mm -hmm. period. That is completely normal. And, and for our adolescents, before they um, are going to grow taller, they're usually going to gain a little bit of weight. But for a lot of my friends, they all of a sudden panic, think their daughters are gaining weight. They need to restrict what their daughters are eating, where that is just a normal process. But so many of my patients then start dieting and restricting. And as a result, they stunt their growth. They end up not as tall as they're supposed to be because they're not eating enough. So Interesting. I think, yeah, so I think watching what they're eating, another thing that's really hard is not labeling food good and bad. And yeah, that's a thing. My, my always says, all you have is all this crap, all this junk food in the house. And he knows better, but, but we need to teach our kids that all food fits and all food is good in moderation. And I know that's like swimming against the tide of what we're taught in society right now. Um, but 100%. Really teaching our kids, yeah, teaching our kids that it's okay and, um, and allowing access to those foods and having a variety of food in your house. But for so many of us, including myself, I grew up in a dieting household. I'd never had regular soda. I'd never had white bread. I'd never had sugar cereal. Oh. So everyone in my family dieted and, and that was pretty normal, which I think it is in a lot of our households now. So I completely recommend the book intuitive eating for anyone. You don't have to have an eating disorder. 
it was actually written for individuals struggling with binge eating disorder. Um, and then in the 90s, it became like a diet book where people were actually using it as a diet book. But I call it a lifestyle book. And it kind of teaches us to honor our hunger fullness, teaches us that all foods can fit, and really teaches us that the diet culture just doesn't work. That's interesting because um, I don't know if, if you've caught any of our previous episodes. So Tyson and I are both bigger guys. Like we, he's a former bodybuilder. I actually just, when we first kicked off this podcast was almost like some opening episodes was me admitting that I've had a food addiction issue for years. And I, I suffer from, I I don't like to use the word suffer. I, I manage my bipolar now when I didn't used to manage it. Uh Um, and I got a lot of my serotonin from food, fast food, a lot of it. And it, it wasn't until probably earlier this year, probably four or four months ago that I started admitting, recognizing, and like accepting that like I was dealing with my mental health issues with food and other unhealthy habits. So we've kind of gone on this journey of getting healthier. And I have a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, and Tyson has a whole brood of children. (laughs) He's got a whole bunch over there. And I've been trying really hard not to use the words like diet or like lose weight or like fat around my kids because they're... My my wife is great with their nutrition and I've been big their whole life. And they're always like, dad, are you going to the gym? Cause I try to go to the gym every night and work out. So I guess I'm in this range of like, well, I'm trying to lose weight. So I know diet is kind of a taboo word. So I'm just trying to make healthier choices, but also still like, I know macro counting. So I'm, I'm, I'm like absorbing everything you're saying. Cause I'm like, how do I, you know, plug this in into what I'm trying to do in a healthy way, but still get healthier, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love what you just said. And so my advice, and this is my advice to anyone, is whatever we decide to do, can it be a lifestyle change? When we look at, yes. for example, the show Biggest Loser, people went on that show and they lost a tremendous amount of weight. And if you're familiar with the follow-up research, and it was published in the New York Times, they followed 30 contestants. All of those contestants gained all the weight back plus more, and then they slowed down metabolisms so they couldn't even eat as much food as they were pre being on the show and they were gaining weight. So when we look at any kind of diet, any diet that we do, even if it's the McDonald's diet, there's actually a McDonald's diet where you can lose weight. No matter what the diet, it will work, I promise you. It has we have to think about the long-term lifestyle. So what I would say to someone is what can you do? And we all want to lose weight really quick, but what if the plan is I just have slow and consistent weight loss over a few years that I can maintain and what healthy lifestyles habits can I build in? And so there is a study. So remember how I told you 98% of all the people that go on diets gain it all back. Yeah. So the study looking at that 2%. And, and my patients always say, oh, Nicole, that 2%, they're people with eating disorders. No, no, no. We know over time people with eating disorders gain weight and, and end up being higher BMIs. So there is a study through the National Registry that is following those 2% of people that consistently keep weight off. And I'm going to tell you the two most important things those people did. Number one, they ate breakfast. Because oh. we know for our metabolism, that's the most important meal of the day. It kicks off our metabolism and it helps with our hunger fullness reading. The second thing they did is they walked 30 minutes a day. They didn't run. They didn't jog. They didn't skip. They just walked. I think of all your listeners right now, I bet most of them could commit that I'll walk 30 minutes a day, even if it's 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and 10 minutes. What if it's just these simple lifestyle changes and it's not these huge things we're doing and these drastic things, but just simple things we build into our life. And then it's a gradual lifestyle change that will give us gradual results, not those quick results where we want it really quick. The research will tell you that people that lose the weight the quickest gain the weight back the quickest as well. Mm. And the so that would be kind of my message is, I love that you said lifestyle changes because that's what we need to do. Sure. 
that's pretty uh that's kind of eye-opening because you, you, you we hear all these things like, hey, lose weight fast, do this. That's all you see on social media. That's all you kind of think. And so you think like it, it's if I lose it quicker, it's probably more healthy and all that kind of stuff. But really, like we're kind of like, hey, guess what? I lost 40 pounds. And because yeah. uh, Logan and I did 75 hard. I saw and- that. That I wasn't gonna harass you about it. Yeah, <laughs> no. I was like, does she know? Are we in trouble? <laughs> yeah. No, I knew. I knew. <laughs> but see, my my plan was, I'm just not going to uh, eat out to eat, like go fast food, like go to McDonald's and Burger King stuff like that. Um, I wasn't necessarily restricting myself, but I was still going to have a hamburger. I just wasn't going to go to a fast food place and get it. But at the same time, um, I'm st- I'm not living 75 hard now, but I'm still doing the same yeah. thing because it, it, Candace and I have tried to make a lifestyle change for our family as a betterment um, yeah. where um, we're still like, if they want licorice, we're going to have licorice. You know what I mean? That type of stuff. Yeah. Um, but we're just going to be the moderation. Like we've learned a lot from you and, and from all the information that we've got. So how about this though? What are some of the factors or risk factors? Cause we talked about the warnings. Um, what would be the risk of uh, someone that would contribute to the development of an eating disorder? So, like, what are the know, risk factors? One thing I, I'll say right now, because all parents that struggle with a child with an eating disorder always blame themselves. Parents are not to blame. Um, it is not the parents' fault. If we want to, if we want to blame anything, we can blame genetics. We think that eating disorders are are highly genetic, but what we're, we're most likely inheriting is that anxiety. So it's that anxiety gene that we're passing down. And so how we learn to manage our anxiety, whether it's alcohol or exercise or being an over, you know, working hard and being a workaholic, whatever it is, or with food, that's usually how we're managing that anxiety. And so that, that would be the big thing is if you have a, an anxious child, Um, that could be definitely a warning sign or any kinds of trauma. Kids that have went through trauma have a high risk of developing an eating disorder. But for me and kind of where I've kind of changed direction in my course um, or career over the last few years is social media. I think what's going on with social media is frightening. I think it's a huge risk to, to our young population right now. Oh yeah. And so what we've seen is when Instagram came out in 2010, if you look at the rates of depression, self-harm, suicide, and eating disorders, they have literally tripled or quadrupled um, currently to back in 2010. And we're, we're basically seeing an epidemic of eating disorders now. And, you know, as Tyson. No, I was going to say, can you explain all this? Because it was amazing. Yeah, I can kind of go through of of kind of what's been going on because I wasn't aware, you know, I am on social media, but I wasn't really aware of how much it targeted our kids. As a provider, when COVID hit, my treatment center was full with a waiting list. At one point, I had a six-month waiting list. And we didn't know what was going on and everyone was blaming it on the isolation and COVID. Yes, the isolation and COVID was real, but the problem was is when kids weren't in school, they were on their devices. And the research shows that our adolescents are spending about 11 hours a day on their devices. Holy cow. If, I believe if it though. You have, yeah. And if you have a teenage girl, a recent study found that they look at their device 19 of the 24 hours a day. So that what that means is they're not on it 19 hours a day, but if they wake up at night and that device is next to their bed, they check it. So we had this huge influx of social media and what came out, um, and it was two years ago, and basically this time two years ago, an executive at Meta, she worked for Instagram, um, Frances Hagen. She was an executive. She was very unhappy of their internal practices and what was going on. So she left Instagram disgruntled and took 100,000 pages of internal documents with her. She turned mm-hmm. all of those docu- documents over to the Wall Street Journal. 
that then did an investigation. And this is the scary thing for those of us that have children. In that investigation, they found that Instagram purposely targeted adolescent girls with depression, self-harm, and eating disorder content oh. on purpose. And what the what they found in the internal documents is the more our kids looked at that content, the longer they stayed on the platform. And so then Instagram sent them more and more stuff. So back then, our government and Congress did investigations and we had hearings on this. And even the, um, the Democratic Senator out of Connecticut, he made a 13 year old's account, a fake 13 year old's account. They logged in, they looked at one eating disorder page. They didn't like it, they didn't follow it, they just viewed it. They logged off, the next day they went on to that fake 13 year old girl's account and her entire account was all pro eating disorder stuff. So for these young girls that are maybe looking for beauty tips, weight loss tips, the minute they come in contact with one of these sites, they are then going to be inundated with this content. And it's overwhelming. It's like a floodgate that hits them. So that's what I'm most concerned about right now, because I think even the strongest girls, the more resilient, I don't know how they're going to fight these messages. And so I'm, I'm talking about Instagram, but of course, we found the same thing on TikTok. And the same things going on on TikTok. So, so right now, I'm involved with 1,200 families, and we have a multi-district litigation case against Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. Um, it's out of a court in San Francisco, and and the hope is we're never going to shut social media down. But the hope is, could we have some algorithms? Could we block them? Could we have some age limits and actual verification? So I just think to be a teenage girl, teenage being a teenager is hard in general, but right now being a girl in this country, the content they see is overwhelming. Yeah. That is so eye-opening. Holy cow. Because I know that stuff wouldn't affect me, but I know it's affected my daughters and affected my wife. And uh, they see that all the time. And it just, it's got to be bombarding and especially if they're looking at it for 19 hours just looking at it just i mean dude that it's gonna affect you you are what you consume you are what you think about and if that's all you're looking at and thinking about no wonder it's yeah. almost like <laughs> voluntary brainwashing like it's like you're like you're not being forced well, it, to, it, it's like it's oh it, it really is you know i first started my research back in 1994 and i was looking at how the thin ideal in the media impacted women. And back in 1996, when I published the research, back then I had shown 30 images of women from Vogue, Glamour, and Cosmopolitan. Basically showing college-age women these images was so triggering. It gave them so much anxiety. It made them hate their bodies. It, it made their depression skyrocket that my research committee that was full of six psychologists said, Nicole, if we knew showing women this kind of material was this damaging to them, we would have never let you do the research. That was back in 1994. It's so much worse now. And on social media, we can't even quantify how many of these images they're even seeing in a day. So that's, that's my concern with it right now is it's just so damaging to our young girls. Goodness. Yeah, like Tyson, he he must have dropped off for half a second. He'll be back on. It Tyson explained to me when he went to your lecture that um I guess that they've they've distorted some of these images and the bodies and the bodies of the models are not actually their bodies, but they're actually like prepubescent little girls and they're like making them appear as though they are adult women. Like yeah. that makes me it makes my stomach turn as a, you know, a father of a 7-year-old girl that just oh, it, that just makes me sick. Yeah. So, yeah. So I show images from Vogue magazine where they use 10 and 11 year old girls to Ugh. represent women. And, and so the problem is, and this is the problem for women, and this is why women get triggered, is we have been, in a sense, brainwashed 
to believe that these images look better. So we yeah. do prefer those images. They look better to us, but it's a, it's a body type that only 1.8% of women in the entire world can have, but we're shown it over and over and over. So we do think it looks better. We prefer it. And so, and, and that's what I wanna throw out for the men listening is yes, this has been going on for women for decades, but this is happening to men too. I show sure. an example. I show an example of a male model that's been on GQ magazine and men's health almost more than any other male model. He's admitted he has a full-blown eating disorder and he works out eight hours a day. So for men, this is happening to you as well. It's just been happening to women much longer, but men are not immune to this um, either. So I feel like now that women have gained more economic equality, the focus on men to look better, to be more fit is higher than it's ever been in the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I mean, I know, I know I've felt that a lot. Uh, I mean, like when I first started messing around on TikTok, I, I was actually using it as I haven't felt good for a long time. I'm going to try to start making other people laugh because I'm, I'm sure you know, sometimes, you know, self-deprecating humor comes along with somebody who has a very poor self-image. And I actually gained a lot of confidence through TikTok. I gained a lot of confidence through, you know, meeting Tyson and doing some of the, I'm sure you've seen some of the really dumb things we've done on TikTok. <laughs> but we we both like to make people feel better about themselves. We like to make them, I mean, Tyson's whole business is his, his slogan is be proud of who you are. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I noticed on the male side of, of social media is it's like, oh, you got to be an alpha. Oh, you, if you can't lift this, if you can't lift twice your body weight, if you can't, if, if you can't, if you can't, if you can't, you're not a man. And yeah. so that gets at you as a man and you're like, oh, I'm not a provider. I'm not a husband. I'm not a, I'm not a father. I'm not good enough. I'm not working hard enough. And men, obviously we know the suicide rate with men is really high. And so it just seems like we're just constantly bombarded, whether you're male, you're female, you're a child. And unfortunately, like this is where I just get so angry at just media in general. And it's yeah. like, I want to keep my children so far away from it. And I'm like, just watch Bluey and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> like, but everything else is crap. Like, and it's just, I mean, and same thing. My kids like to watch the dumb little like marble races on YouTube and the dominoes topple over and every now and then it's like an ad pops up and i'm like why is this on a children's channel so we we don't we don't have unmonitored youtube watching in our house like it's just i'm just so terrified of what you know what my kids could be subjected to and it makes me look like a helicopter dad yeah so exactly. the, this is this is a great transition uh dr hawkins so uh, we talked about like uh, the risk factors, um, the causes. Um, maybe eventually we can talk about the potential physical and psychological effects. Maybe we can do that right now. Um, so I'll ask you that. What are the potential physical and psychological consequences of eating disorders? And then also uh, being a dad, being a mother, uh, being a loved one, how do we support someone who is actually dealing with an eating disorder after that? Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, when we look at a lot of the, the physical things, and it doesn't matter what type of eating disorder you have, your, your nutrition isn't consistent. So if you're anorexic, it's obviously not consistent. But mm -hmm. if you're, it usually isn't. And even if you have binge eating disorder, it's not going to be consistent. So the, what a lot of families and a lot of people are not aware is how much an eating disorder impacts the brain. And so we know from the research that when someone's struggling with an addiction, their prefrontal cortex literally stops lighting up. So that just means, and when you think about teenagers, their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed anyway. So think about that when you think about an eating disorder, someone struggling with drug abuse or alcoholism, they have poor decision-making. They don't think about consequences. They don't think about, is this a good or a bad thing for me to do? They, they don't really future plan. They lose empathy. They, they sometimes become not the nicest person. They're not very sympathetic anymore. Um, and they become extremely impulsive and their moods are all over the place. 
So I could have maybe just described a normal teenager, right? But if you put a, a normal teenager with an eating disorder on top of that, you get per, parents always say, I've lost my kid. This isn't my daughter anymore. I don't even recognize this person because they're acting so different. So those are the cognitive changes. But then if we go all the way down the, the, the body, our hair falls out. So we can have thinning, the hair can fall out, um, significant vision problems can ha happen, dental problems become significant. So increased cavities, their teeth um, get weak and fragile. But the biggest thing and the scariest thing, and this is for dieters, and men have this worse than women if they diet, is the weakening of our bones. So osteoporosis. So that is, so I had a, I had a 26 year old patient just fall over. She was just on the floor, fell over, shattered her pelvis. One oh, of, goodness. one of my 19 year old patients was kicking a ball. It broke her foot. So though that's the damage we're doing when we're dieting and we're restricting and we don't immediately see the results. So if, if you have a loved one that you suspect has an eating disorder, get them into the, into the doctor, make sure they're okay. The problem is, is a lot of general physicians miss all of this because if you don't know what to look for, it's easy to miss. And I would have never have told anyone I had an eating disorder. And so as a parent too, that's why it's hard to support them because a lot of times they keep it so secret from you. Yeah. You know, and you don't know what's going on. No, that's the one thing is, uh, again, the one, the book that we're talking about, Life Beyond an Eating Disorder, talked about how she was afraid that her daughter, her parents knew everything. And it was like five years. And but she was wearing baggy clothing, all this kind of stuff. And you never knew she was a master at moving food on her plate to make it look like she was eating. And so there's a lot of techniques that you learn as uh, with uh, an eating disorder, how to fool your parents. And so um, I, I love that I did. And uh, just. The one thing that I, I that you said that just was spot on that just really sparked my interest is even therapists will misdiagnose this, misdiagnose oh, this to sometimes border a border uh, borderline, borderline personality. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that shook me. I'm like, holy cow! You got it. Like it's just like because that's how hard it is. So I wasn't going to ask this, but how many undiagnosed eating disorders uh, happen on a yearly basis? You know, they, the estimate right now is, is 28.8 million people have eating disorders. But the truth is, um, is we don't even have an accurate count of how many males have eating disorders because they underreport or they don't report. Just in this week alone, I've had three colleagues reach out to me because their 18 or 19 year old sons have bulimia or have anorexia. And, and there's not many places to send them. So, and they just learned that their child, you know, their 18, 19 year old son has an eating disorder. So we really don't know with men. And then for a lot of people that are, that are overweight or obese, the estimate is, is up to 60% of them could have an eating disorder and they're just labeled as obese, but they mm. actually have an eating disorder and it's not getting treated and they're not getting assessed for that they're just getting labeled as not taking care of themselves. But again, they're turning to food to cope with emotions. And most people with binge eating disorder will not fully admit the, the amount of their binges. So one of my patients, for example, she would tell me, well, I ate three slices of bread. For her, that was usually equivalent to, I ate three loaves of bread. Oh, my Right. But they're never they're never going to admit the amount. When, when I had binge eating disorder, I would never admit the amounts that I ate. So if someone asked me and assessed me, I would always under report because I was humilified or, you know, I was so afraid to tell people it's embarrassing. Right. So guess, we, yeah. really, we really don't know. And the problem is right now in the country, 0.04% of therapists specialize in eating disorders. Whoa. Oh my goodness. It's so unbalanced. Yeah. And, and, and medical students get no training on eating disorders at all. 
because it's not sexy. It's not, it, it doesn't, <laughs> I'm dead serious. Like, it's not cancer. It's not, you know, COVID. It's nothing that's in the news every day. It's, it's something that's in social media Whoa. that's fed to you that it's a good thing that you're not eating. It's a good thing that you're, dude, this is mind blowing. Saying, the sexy thing is, is that the eating disorder is making people look more like what they yeah. want them to look like. And so I have a question for you, Dr. Hodkins. So for, for the people that do push, you know, like, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're overweight, you're obese because you're lazy. You're like people who are kind of perpetuating these, like, I guess they're perpetuating stereotypes. the stereotypes. Like what would, if you had, if you had a chance to like talk to them, like what would be like, what would be the one thing or the, or like the two things that you would say to their face of like how they're impacting other people who like, you know, like Great your question. history, my history, you know, other people that we know, like, what would you say to them if you had like an unapologetic floor? <laughs> Well, there's a whole movement kind of devoted to this, and it's called the Hayes Movement or Health at Every Size. And it's trying to educate providers and, and the general public that we can't, we can't put a value on health just on a value of someone's weight. And in fact, the research will show you that underweight people have by far more medical problems than overweight people. Hmm. But hmm. the problem is, is a lot of our healthcare system has a lot of higher BMI people. So they're the ones that get targeted, but it, it's actually much more risky to be underweight than to be overweight. And so I would just encourage people to look at their own fat bias, to not go off of BMIs. BMIs were made by insurance companies many decades ago. They're not accurate. And just look at your overall health. And if people want to make changes for their overall health, then that's why you should be not making changes, not based on your body size or, or your weight. Sure. If you're a higher weight does not mean you're unhealthy. But if you're, you know, if my, my good friend just got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, he is making lifestyle changes because of that, right? Yeah. And so we want to look at our health and if we need to make changes, not just based on the number on the scale. Yeah. I like that a lot. So what are some myths uh, about the dis eating disorders and how would you kind of debunk them? Well, I think a lot of the myths are number one, that it's about food. Eating disorders are nothing about food, even though they look like they're about food and the person that suffers could think it's about food as well. And that also eating disorders are not about body image. Uh, it's kind of ironic that I've been the body image teacher for 24 years. And in my body image groups, I never talk about body image. It's more wow. about self-image. And can I be comfortable with myself? Because if I'm okay with myself, I can tolerate being in a body that I may not like. Or I may, I always tell the patients, I did like my eating disorder body better. I did. I did not like my eating disorder life better. So can mm -hmm. I be comfortable enough in myself? But, but it's hard. And when we think about our daughters again, or our, our, you know, the young people in our lives, going through childhood and being an adolescent is hard enough. And that's why they think, well, I at least need to look good to be okay. And we all know that, that kids get bullied. People get bullied on their body size. And we know, for example, for males, that's the highest risk factor for developing an eating disorder is if you were bullied by your weight when you were in elementary junior high high risk factor for developing an eating disorder so those i think for for all of us being kinder about our own bodies and being kinder about other people's bodies if people are losing weight don't mention it don't make a comment if people have gained weight don't make a comment and don't disparage yourself Right. We need to kind of teach that kind of environment where we're not paying attention to that stuff, if that makes sense. That's kind of tough to not give someone a compliment. Like that's because the whole yeah. life, you know, you see someone who looks good and you're like, dude, you're looking good. So which that's, that's what Tyson and I have been doing to each other. Like, hey man, you're looking good. Hey man, you're looking good. But it's like <laughs> But what wouldn't it be better to say, Hey Tyson, I really appreciate what you just said. That was like yeah. a cool thing. Instead of commenting on on his body or if he's losing sure. weight to say that was genuinely a nice thing you just did for that other person that yeah. if our value could come about who we are as a person, not our physical, how we look. 
Dude, I, I love, love that. that. Oh, so I love, how, I love that you love that. Yeah, I love you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you um, teach? So for me, I personally, um, I, I go to therapy. Um, I would say I suffer from a little bit of anxiety and depression. And um, I would call myself like when I did bodybuilding, when I did powerlifting, I would feel confident taking my shirt off. I'd be I, I wouldn't go out purposely and flex in front of mirrors and stuff, but I'm nowhere near that anymore. Like I'm almost to the point where I go swimming. I keep a shirt on because I'm kind of embarrassed. So how do you teach someone to love themselves, even though that they're struggling? Because for me, I have a hard time loving myself sometimes. So I would say, Tyson, tell me, tell me other things you're really good at or things you're proud of that you've done or tell me what kind of dad you are. So I would want to focus on all these other things about you. I don't really want to focus on your body or how you look in a swimming suit. Because again, but, but for a lot of people, if I'm going to look really good in a swimming suit, I probably have to spend a lot of time in the gym to look really good. And what is that subtracting from my life? What am I missing out of when I'm at the gym all the time? I look at one of my, my neighbors, she comes home from work, she immediately changes and she goes to the gym for three hours at night. Now she has an amazing body. She has nice abs. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go home and spend time with my kids and my family. So look at the devices we kind of make. And, and maybe somewhere along the line, I'd say to you, Tyson, maybe you made a choice that that stuff isn't as important for you anymore. That having that body, being that weightlifter, you've decided somewhere in your life that, that you don't value that as much. You value other things now. It's true. I uh, I did, uh, when I did bodybuilding, I did one competition. And after that competition, I decided my family's more important. I felt very selfish. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> See, she's this is like a therapy session right now, just kind of eye opening. Man, you're amazing at this, which is funny because on it's the flip like side, PhD and you know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's funny because on the flip side, I feel like me trying to change my life, my, my life to a more healthy lifestyle is something that I'm doing for my family because I don't want to have a heart attack when I'm 45 because I've been, you know, extremely. I don't like, I'm, I'm trying to like avoid the taboo words. And I realize what, how like the impact they can have now, like saying overweight or like fat or like, or too heavy. So it's like being unhealthy. Right. So like, I've, I've been trying to focus on not just like, you know, dieting, like, cause my wife, my gosh, you would get along so well with my wife because you're saying so many things about, you know, she's like just not commenting on how people like look because sometimes it comes across as a compliment, but in reality, it's like, maybe that's, Oh man, I just, I need to show her this, but, um, just trying to change. I've noticed kind of going way back to what you said earlier in the show, like just eating breakfast was something I never, ever, ever did. And now I'm like four egg omelets deep and I'm hungry by 10 AM. And I feel like my metabolism has shot through the roof and I am consuming, like almost consuming more food, but it's like the choices I'm the choices I'm making or like, Hey, we're doing ground Turkey stuffed bell peppers with a ton of veggies. And so it's like, I'm feeling really full, but I don't feel like the guilt that I used to feel when I would go eat this or whatever. But then like, I'm learning so much about like, it should, I'm the only one who's more worried about my weight and my, my image than really anybody else out there. Cause I don't look at someone and think like, wow, they look like this because I'm constantly looking at myself. So Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I would tell you to focus on, and and I'm glad you're making lifestyle changes is, but just that, let's not worry about what the scale says. I would say, don't even get on the scale. You just make choices that are going to make you a better person. When we're doing all this negative stuff, when I was doing all this negative stuff at the day, by the end of the day, I felt horrible about myself, but think about, I need to take care of myself. So just like I get up and shower, I need to make sure I'm eating breakfast and I need to make sure I'm eating enough water. Not because I'm trying to lose weight. It's because I'm trying to have good self-care. I don't run anymore. I hate running, but I'll walk on the treadmill for 30 minutes because that's self-care. So I want, we just change the thing is I just want to take care of myself and have better habits so I can live longer. And maybe the behaviors I was doing were pretty unhealthy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's because I got really, and this this might play into the fact that it's just the bipolar tendency of kind of the hyperfixation I get. I kind of got hype. I've become kind of hyperfixated on health, yeah. right? Like I I I do go to the gym for sometimes almost three hours a night, and it's like I come home, we do dinner, bedtime, hang out with my wife and kids, and then it's like my wife's doing homework online. I'll I, like I'll go to the gym, and my wife has made the comment. She's like, you know don't you think you're going to be, you know, kind of getting burnt out going too fast? Why don't you just, you know, just progressively, you know, advance over time instead of like trying to do everything now. But obviously my personality is everything now. So it's like, it's like, you're saying what my wife is saying. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've never heard this before. Yeah. So I have two more questions for you. Um, The first one is, are there specific challenges or considerations when it comes to diagnosing and treating eating disorders of different age groups? So like if you were to deal with me or deal with my 14-year-old son, I don't have a 15-year-old son. Yeah. So when we think about, for example, adolescents entering into therapy, for the most, you, you need to make sure you have a good clinician that knows what they're doing because adolescents usually do not want help and they oh, I can attest to that they do not want they do not think it's a problem and basically the only reason they may agree to come to therapy is to get their parents off their back so adolescents mm. we know the sooner we intervene the better um, but adolescents are the most usually stubborn about our interventions versus an older person if they've maybe been struggling for a long time, they've seen a lot of negative side effects from their behaviors. They may be more willing to get help, but we know if you've had an eating disorder for over four years, it becomes harder to get better, but not impossible. It's Mm -hmm. just a little bit harder because you get set in those routines and those habits and your prefrontal cortex isn't lighting up. But for me, um, give me someone in their 20s, 30s, they're usually pretty motivated to get better. They, they usually have had work consequences, relationship consequences, and you can point to those and they say, yeah, I want to make changes. Or the adolescents like, well, I missed homecoming dance because of my parents. They made me come to treatment. Facts. Right? They're, they're mad about that kind of stuff mm. versus I'm mad at my eating disorder. So that's kind of the difference. So as a parent... Um... You love your children. They will never understand how much you love them uh, until they have their own children. Um, and when they're suffering through this anxiety and depression, um, how do you as a parent let them know how much you love them and that you're just wanting them to do the, you know, you want them to get better, even though they don't see it or maybe they do see it now. How do you help them? Because. I don't, there's, there comes a point in time where you're just like, I'm lost as a parent. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What do you say to those parents? Yeah. I mean, that's a great thing. And I struggle with it. You know, I, I can tell you professionally everything to do, but then when it comes to my own kids, it can be a challenge. And I guess the big thing is, is we have to be the parent and, and we have to do what's right for them. Even if they may resent us or hate us or say they want to move out. We've got to do that right thing. We've got to take care of them. And, That's and tough hope, sometimes. Yeah. And we hope at some point, you know, they'll get it and they'll understand. That's why I always tell parents, bring in a professional like me. Then then your child's anger or their frustration can be all directed at me. And, mm-hmm. and you say, we're just doing what Dr. Hawkins told us. <laughs> so it makes it a little bit easier if you have that third party involved. And then I'm giving the instruction and you're just following that. But, but I completely understand with, with my son, I do a lot of enabling behavior. If he's anxious, I try to help him avoid situations. I try to make it easier, but that's not really helping him. So maybe acknowledging the enabling behavior you do and kind of working on it. We're not all going to be perfect, but noticing how we maybe contribute to to what's going on with them as well without Ooh, blame, that's a good one not, it's not the blame game no but i love that because i i since listening to your discussion and reading these books and uh, your lecture and reading these books i have come to the conclusion that 
some of my personal um, beliefs as uh, as as good as they may be were definitely flawed because I was taught this, and um, I have definitely stopped using healthy uh, foods. I just started using what we're eating, you know, and and uh, I I used to like like I said seventy five hard. I, we went to a restaurant called Tony's, it's our favorite pizza place, um, and. We got a large pizza and I had four pieces and I'm like, I don't feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but my body, like, I didn't feel gross afterwards. It was like, it's like, I limited myself so much that I'm like, I'm doing it. And, uh, it's just like, and I'm, my body's doing well, but now it's just, it's just different. And when you change your mindset or try to attempt to change your mindset, what it does for you. So you've been, uh, this has been fun. I really do appreciate you. This has been so eye-opening and like enlightening. And I'm not just saying that just because you're sitting here. Like, I mean, it's you're hitting so many like thoughts that I'm having, but like in a in like such a healthy response that I didn't know I was looking for. So this has been awesome. But the last question I have is so what are some strategies or resources that individuals can utilize to prevent the development of eating disorders? You know, I think just working on our kids' self-esteem when we when we think and, and having them, if you have a, a child that you feel is is vulnerable to this, getting them in, in involved in a lot of things that aren't related to their bodies. So oh. if, you have, if you have a daughter that you already know has these tendencies, probably don't put her in dance. Don't put her in running. Put her in more like artsy things or different things. So like if we know our kids are kind of vulnerable to this, to watch out for that to look at their kind of temperament. A lot of the kids that are vulnerable to eating disorders or any kind of mental health stuff, they're more of those, I call them turtles. They're very cautious, they're harm avoidant, they don't like to rock the boat, they don't like conflict. Those kids are more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Or if you have a kid that's what I call the rabbit or the hare, they're super impulsive, they always wanna do something new, they wanna make decisions really fast, they're like the high adrenaline junkie kids. They're vulnerable to substance abuse, to bulimia. And so kind of knowing your kid's temperament and watching out for that. And then of course, watching the media they're on, changing mm. maybe your own household things and getting rid of some of that diet culture, which I know is hard. Um, watching what they watch on TV, you know, there's certain things that glamorize it talking to them about social media. I think all those things become very important. But like I said, it's a lot. Yeah. And so yeah. checking in with your kids, asking them, and then just looking for any subtle changes in their behavior um, and, and trying to have a conversation with them, I think is one of the most important things. Do you think as parents we should restrict, not restrict their apps, like say, hey, you cannot get on TikTok or you cannot download it or Snapchat or Instagram? Or do you just say, hey, you got an hour today um, because 19 hours is ridiculous? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you can restrict it, do it. Um, but it's hard because even for a lot of the schools, that's how they're communicating with our kids. Yes. That's how you're getting updates is on Instagram or on Twitter or X or whatever. You know, that's how they're getting updates. So it makes it hard, but if you can turn it off and if you can talk to them about it, but they're way more savvy than we are. And so that's why I think this litigation we're doing will be helpful because then we'll start making these companies manage themselves. Man, I hope it happens. That's yeah. amazing. Well, and you realize, <clears throat> I realize how much children absorb, even from like such a young age, like my daughter loves to watch makeup tutorials with my wife. She will watch right. with my wife. My wife started her career as a cosmetologist. And so that's just an interest level. So she's, she, I will find they have a little Amazon tablet where they can play parent monitor games or, you know, parent monitored, you know, downloaded videos and stuff. And we have found on her little camera roll, her own little YouTube, like, Hey guys, so today we're going to do this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, she's, she started doing this when she was like five and six right. and she's seven now. And I'm like, one, we've created a little YouTube monster potentially. And two, it's like, 
what she's picking that up from a video she has watched a handful of times with her mom. Like she sees me every single day. She sees mom every single day. Like what am I doing that she's picking up on? And then I see a little, a little bad trait of mine kind of rear its head with her. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, they're very, they're very smart. I know. I, I went to um, grab this um, Barbie doll because oh, yeah. I do a whole lecture on Barbie. And now with the movie, I, I'm so concerned. Whoops, my Barbie's upside down. But these, even these childhood images, most girls have these by three years old. This is an influence. And, yeah. and so are the Disney movies. And so it's hard as parents. There's a lot. And so trying to talk to them about it becomes the most important thing if they'll talk to us right <laughs> yeah so uh, um i know my little ones so like my nine-year-old my 12-year-old my third even my 13-year-old bless their hearts they still want to be with dad even my 15-year-old still wants to go like i love working out it's a stress reliever for me um we don't go every day but we try to and uh, but i do that with my son and i found that we have the best conversations doing yep. it and stuff like that and uh I lost my train of thought where we were going with this. Darn it. Just, children just, but, but you know, way, and that's a way to connect, right? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I lost my train of thought where it was going from, but, well, but, but what I can go with your train of thought is when we think about, cause I said, if our kids will talk to us, but, but our kids, Oh yes, that's what it was. They're not going to sit down and talk to us, but if maybe if we're riding in the car, Maybe if we're, you know, you're at the gym with your son, those are the opp opportunities where they're going to connect mm -hmm. versus sit down and say, we need to talk. They're going to be like, no, we don't. <laughs> yeah. That's where I was going with it. You're right. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've noticed yeah. that when I'm doing stuff and I'm actively engaged in their life, that's when they're more willing to discuss everything with me rather than sit in front of a screen and watching a movie and talk and stuff like exactly. that. So. It just sounds like the moral of the story here is like finding healthy communication with your kids and with one another. Cause like just being raised in, you know, the generations we were, you know, eighties, nineties, all that stuff, like just the way things are done back then. It's just, we're realizing now, like that was not, was not a good way to do that. It was not a good way to do that. Like I was raised in the stop crying. You're fine. You know, like, I mean, that's, and one thing that my, I've told, I think I told this to Tyson, that one thing that my wife sent me on TikTok was um, how to talk to my kids when they're having like an emotional reaction to something, especially if it's anger. And this mom, she sits down with her kids and she says, start squeezing my hand and give me your mad. Like, like, so they can like squeeze it out. And then you start kind of like theatrically like, oh my gosh, it's hurting. Oh, whatever. And then they start laughing and then you can start talking in a healthy way. Like, why are you so frustrated? Why are you saying this mean thing to mom? Why are you saying this thing to dad? And I've started doing that with my daughter and I've noticed she came up to me the other day and she said, can I give you my mad? I had a bad day. Oh, that's cool. That's cute. I'm like, I'm not crying. You're crying. We're not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah. cool. But so it's like, I've realized like, Hey, if I just trying to do things differently because it's like, I, I just, I fear so much for the world our kids are growing up in because of all the things that we've bottled up and we've shoved down. And I'm like, I don't want you to go through that. Yeah. And I know genetics are genetics. And, but it's like, I just, I just I, want so I, bad. For kids I don't know life. time we have, but I use an analogy um, with my patients. If you imagine this very pretty glass face and we can have traumas like little T or big T traumas. And we fill up that glass vase. Well, at some point, something's going to happen when that glass face gets full. For men, typically, it explodes. And that's when we act out or we have big behaviors. Or when I used to work at the VA, that was my patients that got really angry or yelled or drug or alcohol. And they get glass everywhere. For patients with eating disorders and a lot of women, when our glass face gets full, we put a lid on it. And that lid keeps everything shoved down. It keeps it contained. And then it protects us from new stuff that happens to us. New traumas, they bounce mm. off. So for a lot of us, that lid is the eating disorder or the oh, wow. that keeps it all shoved down. And we just keep on saying we're fine, but we're not fine. We're emotionally overflowing. So learning to take that lid off and learning new coping skills so I don't keep on shoving stuff down and saying I'm fine. Wow. We're going to have to have you on a couple of times because there's so much information here. Apology works if I'm going to be on again. 
we're just gonna we're just gonna call it dad bods and beards and dr hudkins like, yeah, <laughs> like this is great but thank you so much for uh coming on and uh if anyone has any questions uh, or they would like to maybe uh request your services how might they do that you know they can email me um it's just nicole.hawkins at uhsinc.com and they can just email me and i'm happy to take any questions if anyone needs referrals or help i'm happy to help that's amazing thank you so much thank you so much for listening guys it means the world to us if you have a chance please give us a five-star review as well as write something a little pretty in there so that we know that you know that we know that you care Anyway, have a great day, guys. I can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's good. That was, I like that. You can't redo it without laughing. That was good. <laughs>